welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. First, I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. What you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. In our previous episode, we explored optic neuritis, photosensitivity, and other visual impairments often experienced by our MS community. I hope it was helpful in raising awareness of this issue that will over time impact so many of us to various degrees. This week, we're going to dive into a topic related to a huge part of my personal recovery journey. To learn the basics about the impact of trauma and ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences, and how this increases our chances of developing an autoimmune condition and other illnesses as adults, you can check out episode 11, The Past Informs the Future, ACEs and Resiliency. Briefly, as it's pertinent to this episode, ACEs are negative experiences that occur during the first 18 years of life. They include various events, like experiencing or witnessing abuse or neglect, and cover a wide variety of dysfunctions within the home. An early ACEs study, published by Kaiser some 20-odd years ago, found that as the number of ACEs in a child's life increases, so does the likelihood of multiple risk factors for several of the leading causes of death in adults. In addition to the 10 categories of trauma included in the formal ACEs assessment, it's important to also acknowledge that many hardships that did not make the formal assessment still add to our stress response, such as severe bullying, systemic racism, losing a caregiver, homelessness, sustaining and recovering from a serious accident, or involvement within the foster care system or the juvenile justice system. Many of the folks studying ACEs today also look at these additional markers as well, as they acknowledge now that a wider range of traumatic experiences impact our future health. Another aspect to consider is trauma that we experience and therefore accumulate throughout our lives after age 18. Trauma creates much dysregulation in the body, especially if we don't learn to process and work through the trauma response to release it in healthy ways, in which case it continues to eat away at us from within, sometimes even without us being aware of it at all. In episode 11, I share that until I began therapy post-neuropsych evaluation, much of what I had experienced in my life I would not have classified as traumatic. Sure, I experienced some hard things, but in my lived experience, life is hard, for most of us at least it seems. 
And I didn't think I was any different or that what I had experienced could negatively impact my health as an adult and become an important part of assembling the puzzle of understanding my MS story. The most important thing to remember about ACEs is that our ACE score is meant as a guideline. So if we experienced other types of toxic stress over months or years, then those would likely increase our risk of negative health consequences as well. Understanding persistent trauma and how it leads to toxic stress is important. Repeated and or prolonged activation of the stress response without the buffering protections of trusted, nurturing caregivers and safe, stable environments leads to long-term changes in the structure and functioning of our brains and metabolic, immune, and neuroendocrine responses, and even the way DNA is read and transcribed. This is all known as the toxic stress response. These biological changes play an important role in the clinical progression from ACE exposure to negative short and long-term health and social outcomes. Further, these outcomes demonstrate a pattern of high rates of intergenerational transmission, so these trends and patterns are often highly visible in family structures. For both children and adults, addressing current stressors and building networks of safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and environments are associated with decreased metabolic, immunologic, neuroendocrine, and inflammatory dysregulation, as well as improved physical and psychological health. So, even if we have experienced these sorts of hardships, the good news is that much of the toxic stress responses we encounter can be reversed with positive health outcomes. While we're looking at long-term and toxic stress, let's not forget to mention a traumatic event we all share, being diagnosed with an incurable progressive disease. I don't have to tell you how hard that reality is to live with. All semblance of security or sense of predictability in our lives that we may have previously felt is gone in an instant. Our life dreams may have been altered. Our abilities may have changed. This unchosen change can be highly traumatic. And we've all been experiencing together the COVID-19 global pandemic which continues to be highly traumatic for many of us here in the United States and around the globe. What all this boils down to is this. Quite simply, what we experience matters and is directly related to our health. And as we'll learn today, there is a specific type of environment that folks who experience toxic stress need in order to thrive. The folks at acesaware.org, led by California Surgeon General Nadine Burke Harris, have found that by training healthcare workers to learn and implement trauma-informed care principles, patients can make huge gains because they will be treated by doctors fully informed of what we have experienced in our lives and approach their care for us in a way that we benefit from most. I found it quite promising to discover through my research that there is a growing number of states engaging in this work. I encourage you to research your state to see how they are addressing this area of need. 
The California ACEs Aware site offers a wealth of learning opportunities for patients and healthcare providers alike. You can access their directory of those who have committed to creating trauma-informed care approaches to find a trauma-informed caregiver near you. And you can find helpful one-pagers to share with your existing caregivers who might benefit from learning about trauma-informed care practices. Today, we'll look at these principles for trauma-informed care, explore why they are so important, and our main focus for today, how we can utilize these principles to ensure we are, one, advocating for the care we need, two, honoring our inner voice when it tells us we should search for a doctor we connect with better, and also three, how we can infuse these principles into our daily lives to ensure we are thriving in our current environment. My gratitude this week is for my garden, and specifically, what regularly tending my garden has taught me over time about my concurrent journey toward cultivating an environment where I can achieve living well with MS. We can learn a lot from gardening. First, gardening teaches us to prioritize. Oftentimes, many things are happening simultaneously in the garden, and I have to choose what is most pressing or what is the most important investment for the future garden I want to have. There are a ton of plants I could choose to add to my garden, but it's important to me to choose native drought-resistant plants that will provide nourishment to either my family or all the birds, lizards, bees, and such that share our property. And the garden is a limited space, so keeping in mind what I already have and what I can easily add to my plate is important. This too is an important lesson about life in general. When we learn to prioritize in alignment with our values and time priorities, our gardens and ourselves flourish. Secondly, it's important when gardening to have a plan, albeit flexible. Sometimes in a garden, despite best efforts, a plant may not flourish, or it may be a bad fit for a particular area over time given its adult size. Through thorough planning, we can prevent a lot of issues from ever occurring, which makes gardening a lot more fun. The same is true with life. If we have a plan or a vision for what kind of life we want to have, it's easier to bring it to fruition. If we just let life happen to us passively, it may become chaotic, overwhelming, or overgrown, like an unruly, uncared for garden. Gardening also teaches us that it's important to lean into our garden's strengths. When we assess our garden, we might see that different areas receive different amounts of sunlight, water, wind, or have variation in soil composition. These factors should be taken into account when choosing what to plant where for optimal success. The same is true in life. If we can lean into our strengths, our skill sets, the people we surround ourselves with, our physical, mental, or emotional abilities or aspects of our character, like our garden, we'll experience much greater success and happiness. In tending a garden, it's important to keep pests out. There are many ways to do this, some as simple as borders or fences, 
others through companion planting, which is placing a plant that naturally keeps pests away next to a plant that those pests might normally eat. Some folks might choose to use pesticides, but hopefully you, as someone living with MS, know that it's important for us and our environment to find safer ways to protect our gardens. In a similar way, we can protect ourselves from unwanted pests through boundaries. Episodes 9 and 10 are all about boundary work, if you're realizing a recap might be helpful. Learning to instill stronger boundaries in my life has helped me tremendously on my healing journey these past few years. And several important relationships that were previously a struggle are now much more symbiotic in nature. Gardens also need good soil to thrive. We spend a lot of time here assessing and testing our soil, then adding compost, manure, and other lacking ingredients to support our plants. In a similar way, it's important to care for ourselves by regularly assessing where we're at and changing our environment, usually through our lifestyle habits, to ensure we're able to maintain good health as long as possible. For it is our choices that determine our health. Should I sit on the couch for three hours or take my dog for a walk? Should I eat this hamburger or this big bowl of veggies? Should I go to bed at 10 or stay up reading? Should I take daily pre and probiotic for optimal gut health? By tending to ourselves and ensuring our environment is conducive to supporting wellness, like supple soil in a garden, we can thrive. Tending to a garden is a continuous journey. There is always work to be done. Setting a schedule has helped us a lot. We have a smart watering system that continuously monitors our microclimate and waters only when and where our plants need it most. Eric mows every Monday and Friday. We pull weeds and prune plants constantly, starting at one end of the yard and slowly rotating around until we're back where we started, then continue around again. Just as the garden needs constant tending, so do we. This is why establishing and sticking to a nightly sleep routine, for example, is so important for our ongoing health, or why a consistent morning or exercise routine helps us succeed in our health goals. Devoting regular time to tend to ourselves helps us thrive and achieve our long-term health outcomes. Through gardening, I've also learned that sometimes things just aren't meant to be, no matter how hard I try. Last summer was so hot, we lost a lot of plants. That might happen this year, too. Learning to deal with the loss as something outside of our control makes it easier. And yet in life, it can be much harder to accept our lack of control. Gardening teaches me to be flexible, continually look for ways to improve, but also understand that sometimes, even with the best efforts, things don't work out as we had hoped. By focusing my efforts on the things I can control and letting go of the things I can't, I find I can keep my stress levels much more in check. While there's many more lessons I've learned from gardening, the last I want to mention today is the importance of enjoying the harvest. Last month was apricot time. We made apricot jalapeno jam, apricot cobbler crumble pies, brown butter apricot bars, and spicy apricot barbecue sauce. We'll be able to enjoy these all year and be continually grateful for the harvest. 
This month is all about cherries with the nectarines, peaches, apples, and pears not too far behind. Just like appreciating our gardening wins, it's important to thoroughly enjoy and celebrate our wins in life. Taking time to acknowledge our efforts matters. It warms us by filling us with gratitude and it fuels our fire to continue to work hard in the future. Whether tending to our literal gardens or our lives, it's important we keep top of mind these important conditions for success and acknowledge that we have the ability to cultivate them. So what is trauma-informed care? Different sources have slightly different definitions and pathways to developing their trauma-informed care principles, but in general, all seem unified in their recognition that traumatic experiences can be terrifying, overwhelming, and feel like a serious violation to the person experiencing them. Trauma-informed care, therefore, is a commitment to not repeat these experiences so as to restore a sense of safety, self-worth, power, and choice for patients. And again, while exact verbiage differs, most trauma-informed care programs focus on six principles, which we'll look at today. As we go through them, be thinking about ways you might be able to utilize this information in your own life as you continue to navigate conversations about your care with family, community, and healthcare providers. The first principle of trauma-informed care is safety. This means that throughout any care organization, staff and the people they serve consistently feel safe, both physically and psychologically. Why is safety so important? When we feel safe, we can operate as our true selves. This is important for staff at care centers and for those of us who rely on care center treatment and support. This is also important in our daily lives. Assessing our sense of safety in different environments and around different people can be very enlightening self-reflection. Some good questions to ask ourselves. Do I feel safe around this person or in this space? Do I feel like I am welcomed and cared for exactly as I am? Can I speak my mind here and actually be heard? Do I look forward to coming here or seeing this person or do I dread it? Am I able to bring my true self to this space or do I notice that I sometimes hold back or don't share everything that I'm thinking or feeling? Do I feel accepted or judged here? In 1997, author Beverly Tatum released Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? This book changed forever the conversation about race and racism in our nation, and also was one of the first to address the importance of identity safety in schools. What is identity safety and why am I bringing it up here? In any setting, conditions are ideally deliberately created so that everyone is consistently treated in a way where their social identities are viewed as an asset rather than a barrier. By acknowledging, honoring, and celebrating the many social identities we each ascribe to, we're able to provide environments and relationships more conducive to learning and healing. This ensures people feel safe, welcomed, supported, and valued. 
To understand identity safety, it's important to reflect on our own identity. Our identity is comprised of a number of components that reflect who we are as people. It includes personal choices and how we choose to be unique from others, like how we dress, as well as our social identities, which are determined by our chosen or sometimes unchosen membership in various groups. These can be either familial, gender-based, religious, or occupational in nature, racial, or related to ethnicity, or ability-based, among other categories. More than 20 years later, after Beverly Tatum began the identity safety conversation specifically about race and educational settings, we have made gains in the educational realm to ensure that classrooms are safe and welcoming places for all learners but there is still significant work left to be done. It's promising, however, to see that awareness of and dedication to identity safety is on more people's radars now, and especially outside of the educational realm in healthcare. When we are in an identity safe space, we feel truly accepted for every aspect of who we are and collectively view our differentiators as assets and strengths. This type of environment promotes cooperation, equity of voice, responsibility, and autonomy, all quite necessary in a healthcare environment that is trying to promote healing. Did you know that classrooms where teachers build trusting relationships with each student result in stronger academic achievement outcomes? I believe the same is true in healthcare settings. How many doctors do you have on your care team who truly accept you and honor all that you are and all that you identify with? Who takes the time to really get to know you as a person beyond your illness? Have you ever avoided going to the doctor because of your perceived relationship with the doctor? If yes, you're not alone. In a recent study by the National Institute of Health, they found that nearly one-third of respondents avoided going to see their doctor even when they suspected it was necessary. And this trend continued even with major health problems. In one study in particular, they cited that 17% of patients diagnosed with rectal tumors reported that they waited one to five years to visit their doctor after noticing symptoms. This is a huge problem in healthcare, as avoiding care results in inaccurate detection and diagnosis and a grim reality of reduced survival rates. Relationships matter. If you feel unsafe or if any aspect of your identity is not welcomed and honored with your current care team, consider a change. The second principle of trauma-informed care is trustworthiness and transparency. This means that the practitioners and organization conduct their work with full transparency. Nothing is hidden or assumed. This helps build and maintain trust amongst staff and those of us seeking care. This looks like building understanding regarding necessary procedures and all that goes with them, such as costs, upfront, and then adhering to what is agreed upon. Transparency in healthcare is about access to information and the sharing of information in a way that can easily be understood. In a nutshell, all interactions and processes around options, costs, 
and possible health outcomes should be clear and straightforward, enabling truly informed decision making. So, for example, I recently met a young woman diagnosed with MS in the past few months. She is currently deciding on a DMT, disease modifying therapy. She reported that her doctor briefly rattled off a few possible choices, then told her to research them and come back with a decision. In the appointment notes, however, the doctor wrote that she thoroughly reviewed all treatment options, which did not at all feel like an accurate representation of what the patient experienced. You'll not be surprised that I, amongst others, recommended to this young woman to keep looking for a doctor who was fully transparent and trustworthy. Doctors have a plethora of brochures, at the very least, about all currently available MS treatment options. Helping patients make informed choices is important. It should not be left up to us to choose blindly. Largely, we are a community who trusts our doctors and wants help in making these important treatment decisions for people who actually have a medical background, rather than putting all of the options on a proverbial dartboard to make a decision based on an errant dart, or leaving that important choice up to a chorus of random Facebook commenters. That is not only irresponsible, it can be dangerous and seriously impact our long-term trajectory with MS. So, how does trustworthiness and transparency live in your current relationships? With your doctors and other care providers? With your family, friends, workplace, community, and other spaces and groups you frequent? What is your gut reaction when you engage with them? Are there places where trust and transparency is lacking, where you might want to reconsider your involvement? The third principle of trauma-informed care is peer support and mutual self-help. It's no secret to most of us the importance of support from others who truly understand. This builds trust, establishes safety, and encourages empowerment, self-reliance, and self-advocacy. Most people, when receiving a disheartening diagnosis of MS or a similar health challenge, tend to retreat at first. This is a normal reaction to shock. Over time, many of us seek out others who understand, especially when we find those closest to us, while supportive, just don't understand the specifics of the hardships we face in a way we crave. This is, in fact, the entire vision of this podcast and our flock group, to create a place of learning and support with people who share a specific hardship, in this case, MS. Have you ever read about the effectiveness of programs like Weight Watchers or Alcoholics Anonymous? While these programs don't score 100% success rates, they are often still quite successful, even though losing weight or working through an addiction can be extremely difficult to achieve. Do you have peers with MS that you can lean on regularly? And just as important, do you have peers with MS that you help support through their hardships regularly? The most powerful support comes from others who deeply understand. Through giving and receiving understanding, compassion, and possible strategies or solutions, together we can achieve much more than we can in isolation. If you are ever lonely, 
If you have MS-related questions you'd like to talk about, I encourage you to reach out and consider joining our MS flock. Fellow flock member James and I also host free casual social meetups each Saturday. If you're not interested in discussing podcast content, but just want a place via Zoom to interact with other folks living with MS, reach out. This is too challenging of a journey to face it alone. We're in this together. The fourth component of trauma-informed care is collaboration and mutuality. This relates to the meaningful sharing of power and decision-making. We are all likely familiar with power dynamics and how they can play out in different settings in either a positive or negative fashion. It's important to be aware of these power dynamics in relationships as they can impact outcomes greatly. In healthcare, for example, there are hierarchies within the healthcare system between different types of clinicians, like doctors, nurses, or with practitioners who practice acupuncture, chiropractic, or cranial sacral services. These positional power dynamics are also often present in doctor-patient relationships, where the patient views the doctor as having much more knowledge and therefore power than they do. In an unbalanced relationship where a patient does not feel invited to the decision-making process table or feels inferior to or less valued by the provider, the patient is less likely to fully participate in the care decisions and less likely to follow through on the care plan. Has a doctor made suggestions to you that you just haven't been able to achieve? Taking time to think about why can be very insightful. Other power dynamics exist and can be based on many aspects of our personal identities, in addition to if we are wearing a patient or caregiver hat, like gender power dynamics, which most often favor men over women, especially in terms of the glass ceiling in business, or ethnicity-based power dynamics, where at least in the United States, traditionally favor white European descendants. There are also power dynamics based on age, with typically the 30 to 40-year-old range experiencing some level of privilege in terms of power dynamics over those younger or older. This is one of the reasons that job-seeking and hiring tends to be most favorable to this age group. In addition, power dynamic imbalances exist along more personality-based attributes, traditionally favoring extroverts over introverts, or more analytical folks over those who tend to have a more emotional lens or approach. Why are these power dynamics and relationships so important to understand and actively look for and address in all of our relationships? First, a lack of awareness leads to an unintended misuse of power. When we might have a power dynamic advantage in a given relationship but are blind to it, we won't be able to see our negative impact on others and won't be able to maximize our positive impact as we may have been striving for. Even if it's unintended and we have the best intentions, our intended impact will not be achieved. Lack of awareness of power dynamics also leads to a lack of empathy for those less empowered. It's easy to forget privilege when we have it and to fully not appreciate the lived experience of others. 
While I hope this doesn't sound familiar when you think of your caregivers, it is a helpful barometer in assessing relationship health, not only with our caregivers, but also with others in our lives with whom we have relationship. When people with less power feel undervalued, it becomes an unsafe environment. It's much more effective to reach care goals by actively looking for and addressing unhealthy power dynamics so that we can collectively and collaboratively arrive at important decisions. Healing happens in relationships where power and decision-making is shared. In education, teachers are evaluated by student performance. It would be interesting to see how that translates to healthcare if doctors were truly held accountable to patient health outcomes. I've often wondered why this isn't the case. In thinking about your life, are there relationships either with caregivers or family, colleagues, or community members where you feel an imbalance of power dynamics? Is there someone who consistently gets their way with you even when you don't really agree? Do you find yourself giving in to what they want over what you feel in your gut? Are there relationships that feel more like a drain than a fountain and leave you depleted? What can you do to achieve better balance in those relationships? Or are they really healthy relationships altogether? By taking time to assess our relationship power dynamics, we may find there are some relationships that can be easily adjusted some may be cemented and unable to change. Being able to identify relationships that no longer serve us and our health and life goals is an important aspect of self-advocacy and healing. The fifth component of trauma-informed care is empowerment through both voice and choice. When this trauma-informed care component is alive and well, the care organization's staff, patients, and family members it serves operate with the understanding that every person's experience is unique and requires an individualized approach. This approach acknowledges, appreciates, and builds on the assets each unique contributor brings to the table, rather than focusing on any perceived deficits. This is strengths-based leadership at its best. This is how to make people not only feel, but be included. Our voices matter. Our choices matter. So when we turn the mirror to our own lives and relationships with care providers and others, to what extent do we feel empowered in both voice and choice? Are we heard? Do we have a say and some level of choice over the direction of our path? If we find relationships where we don't feel empowered upon further examination, are there things we can do to feel more empowered in those relationships? Or are they relationships that no longer serve us, since they are detrimental rather than supportive of our life goals? These are important questions to ask ourselves as we reflect on the health of our current healing environment. Finally, the sixth component of trauma-informed care is cultural, historical, and gender issues. Many of these issues I already referred to when talking about safety in general, since identity safety is so important. In settings where this component of trauma-informed care is achieved, cultural stereotypes and biases do not survive, but rather culturally responsive methods do. 
This leverages the healing value of traditional cultural connections and recognize, reduces, and hopefully eliminates any historical trauma. As you can see by now, the impact of trauma is far-reaching and affects every single aspect of our health. By implementing a trauma-informed care approach, both staff and clients work together in a framework of wellness that produces improved outcomes for all. In addition to enhanced client care, a culture of trauma-informed care and practice can improve employee satisfaction and engagement while reducing burnout and turnover. It truly is a win-win for all. You can refer to acesaware.org or your own state's website to learn more about how to bring about this shift in the healthcare industry and how to find a practitioner already trained in trauma-informed care near you. One of the other ways we can improve our lives is by sharing these principles with our current care providers. We can also use these principles to assess our relationships with caregivers and others to create stronger relationships more conducive to healing. And finally, we can use these principles to make a shift in our own thinking. To shift to a place of trauma-informed care, it really boils down to this. It requires a shift in philosophy and clinical approach to both assessment and treatment. The ACEs Aware programming explains it in a simple and beautiful way. It's approaching every interaction with patients with the mindset of what happened to you or what have you experienced rather than what's wrong with you. This simple adjustment can often be the small but mighty difference between a meh relationship and a mutually beneficial relationship. We can help to bring this change of approach to life with our practitioners by reframing how we begin our conversations with them. So, for example, rather than starting our appointment by sharing what's wrong with us, like my vision is deteriorating, I'm experienced increased foot drop, etc., we can share what we've experienced or what has happened to us. So, it could sound like, I've been experiencing higher levels of stress, which has caused my vision to deteriorate more often. By just shifting how we think about and speak about what we're experiencing, we can provide our doctors with a different pathway to care. In this shared example, rather than the doctor just referring us to an optical neurologist to look more closely at our impacted vision, they might rather address the root cause of the impairment, which is the higher levels of stress. Better yet, they might do both, which with hopefully the optical neurologist likewise addressing the root cause of higher levels of stress. It's important to note that adopting a trauma-informed approach is not accomplished through any single particular technique or checklist. Whether we're looking at how a care center operates or at how we're bringing these elements alive in other aspects of our lives. A trauma-informed approach requires constant attention, awareness, care, and in all likelihood, a cultural shift at the organizational and operational level. For any care provider, the following key principles of trauma-informed care should serve as a guide for all who provide care. 
whether formally or informally. The first element is the importance of building relationship to establish that physical and emotional safety and trust and establish a partnership that honors provider and patient collaboration by bringing patients into the treatment process and discussing mutually agreed upon goals for treatment. The second element is to always start with understanding. Care providers need to first understand the prevalence of adversity in our lives and its impact on health and human behavior, as well as be able to recognize the effects of trauma and adversity on health and provide training to respond to patients with trauma-informed care best practices. The third element is that they be sure to integrate information about trauma and adversity into all aspects of their operation, their policies, procedures, publications, practices, and treatment planning and execution. The important fifth element is to provide patient-centered, evidence-based care that is sensitive to the patient's racial, ethnic, and cultural background and gender identity to ensure the most appropriate and effective care avenues. And lastly, of utmost importance to avoid re-traumatization by approaching all patients with warm, non-judgmental care and support. It's not unusual for people who have experienced trauma to feel shame, anger, sadness, or embarrassment when discussing their health and past experiences. It's important that care providers know how to talk with their patients about these experiences and the emotions that come with them and help us to seek professional help with skilled trauma-informed therapists to work through them. When approached with professional tact, patients typically find the experience enlightening and empowering, although it can take some time and effort to get there. But once patients and practitioners are aligned in their understanding of how ACEs, toxic stress, and our current levels of health might play out over time, it's much easier to arrive at appropriately focused care moving forward. This might look a little different in different settings, but a few examples of trauma-informed care could look like, in the primary care context, providers can provide supportive, compassionate responses to trauma histories of ACEs or other adversities and toxic stress. Doctors can articulate and model collaborative decision-making with their patients to build a sense of teamwork, trust, and safety. Doctors can empower patients by providing education on simple things we can do every day at home to recognize how stress shows up in our bodies and to learn to help regulate our stress response system and buffer the negative impacts of toxic stress. Education could include assistance in building supportive relationships with family and caregivers, how we can achieve better sleep, best nutrition for addressing and healing specific health challenges, the benefits of regular physical activity, mindfulness and meditation, the importance of sunshine and experiencing nature, or mental health care strategies. Our doctors can also be at the ready to refer us to mental health providers who are trained in evidence-based trauma-specific therapy if necessary. They may also refer us to various resources or interventions like social workers, care coordinators, school agencies, spiritual leaders, or community health workers. 
They can suggest appropriate support groups to provide the understanding we seek from others. Our doctors can also practice compassionate resilience to maintain their provider well-being while caring for us patients so that they will be able to combat compassion fatigue, burnout, secondary traumatic stress, or other related concerns. When physicians utilize the components of trauma-informed care, they've shared that by altering their care just a little bit to be aligned with trauma-informed care principles, they're able to meet the needs of their patients better. One physician shared that his new style of trauma-informed care takes just five minutes longer than how he used to conduct his sessions, and he believes those five minutes are the most important minutes he spends with his patients. On the ACEs Aware website, you can learn all about real-world examples where assessing patient needs through a trauma-informed lens helped them solve serious health concerns efficiently. One story that was quite compelling was an infant suffering from extreme colic. It turned out that by treating the mother's toxic stress, they were able to cure the infant's colic. In another personal story example they shared with a patient living with asthma, I learned that folks who have experienced a lot of trauma or toxic stress don't typically respond as well to common asthma medications the same way as folks who have not experienced similar levels of trauma. So, understanding a patient's full history, including the trauma and toxic stress they have experienced, can help doctors prescribe treatments that fit each patient's needs most and give them the largest likelihood of healing. In summary, a program, organization, or system that is trauma-informed realizes the widespread impact of trauma and understands potential paths for recovery. It recognizes the signs and symptoms of trauma in clients, families, staff, and others involved with the care system, and responds by fully integrating knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, and practices, and seeks to actively resist re-traumatization. I hope you'll consider visiting either the California or your state's ACEs site to learn more about trauma-informed care, as there is compelling evidence for healthcare providers to acquire this perspective and instill this approach. If we are informed and know what sort of care could help us most, we can better advocate for the care we need. Trauma is pervasive. Trauma's impact is broad, deep, and life-shaping. Trauma differentially affects the more vulnerable. Trauma affects how people approach services. The service system as it currently exists has often been activating or re-traumatizing, compounding toxic stress. It's time to stop excusing or justifying unacceptable behavior in healthcare and shift toward accountability and responsibility when it comes to being trauma-informed. It's also time for us to take responsibility for our own environments to ensure that the trauma-informed care principles we reviewed together today are alive and well. By regularly tending to our garden, we can create the conditions where we'll truly be able to live well with MS. Understanding trauma-informed care principles can help us create an environment where we can heal and thrive. If someone in your life with MS or even another hardship is struggling to thrive in their current environment, 
Or you have someone in your life who is struggling to understand why you might desire a different approach from them to help support you better. I hope you will consider sharing this episode with them and that it will be helpful for all. I hope that after listening to this episode, we all, one, have a better understanding of trauma-informed care so that we can transform our current healthcare environment into one where these lived principles can help us heal and thrive. Two, that we remember that it is our right to have a medical care team that operates in a trauma-informed way. There is no shame in asking for a second opinion or searching for another care provider more aligned with our goals and approach. Three, that we take full responsibility for ourselves and our needs by protecting our environment and continually tending to it to cultivate it into a place where we can heal and thrive. And four, that we always remember the most important aspect of trauma-informed care. There is nothing wrong with us. We have simply experienced hard things. The next flock meeting will be Saturday, August 7th. At the flock meeting, we'll discuss this episode and other episodes released this month and just spend some virtual time together supporting one another as we all strive to live well with MS. If you're not yet a flock member but would like to be, join us. We meet via Zoom the first Saturday of each month. You can learn more and join us by visiting patreon.com slash msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well. Ah.